Today's story is Mr. Teeth, written by Daniel Dubois. People sometimes ask me what my first memory is. Invariably, I lie, because I'm prone to avoid the explanation that comes with the truth. Maybe, from now on, if someone casually asks me, I will reach into my bag where there will be copies of this story, and I'll just hand one over. As they read it, their face will morph from confusion into the furrowed brow of concern, and finally into the drop-jawed bewilderment that accompanies real fear. In passing, I tell people that my first memory was me standing on a stool in front of my kitchen window. It was just after dusk in winter, and from where I stood, I could make out black limbs of the skeletal beech tree that loomed across from the driveway. While that is indeed a real memory, it's not a first one. If you want to hear about it, here it is. There was an unfortunate series of incidents that happened in the town where I grew up in during the summer of 1989. By incidences, I mean murders. I'm not talking about the run-of-the-mill bar brawl gone too far, or an act on passionate revenge. No. The event that happened in Middleton were far more grotesque, even more so because the victims were children. I don't remember the heat wave that swept Middleton that summer, the pink droplets of melted ice cream on the shimmering pavement, or old men reclined in overstuffed chairs in shady living rooms. These precious details were told to me through family members and friends of my parents. They all, to this day, say that it was the hottest summer they had ever lived through. To make the weather even more unbearable, there were some weekly brownouts that year due to some oversights at the electrical plant in Salem. As a result, homes and businesses would go hours at a time without air conditioning. Popsicles were promptly sold out in every business afternoon. Magazines and newspapers weren't read that summer. They were bought to be used as makeshift fans. It seemed that the only place where air conditioning still remained during these outages was the car. I've been told by relatives that it was not uncommon during the summer to find neighbors lounging back in their parked cars with the windows up, drinking a beer and listening to the radio. At times, it was the only escape from the unbearable humidity and heat. That's why when mothers would go shopping, it became impossible to pull their children from their cars. After all, the kids knew that the inside of whatever clothing or grocery store their mother had taken them to was probably as hot, if not hotter, than the parking lot. The coolest and best place was in the car, with the windows rolled up and that gentle whispering wind seeping through the vents. With this setting in mind, you could understand how Mr. Teeth, as he was later called by the newspapers, had his pick of the litter, so to speak. He knew that in any given lot outside of a busy grocery or department store, there would be at least two or three cars where the children had been left inside. One such car was parked outside of the market basket on the afternoon of June 3rd. Within sat Jeremy Hager, a freckled eight-year-old with a penchant for action figures. When Jeremy's mother returned from her quick dash for butter, she found the back right door of the vehicle ajar, a Darth Vader doll left behind and abandoned on the back seat. News of the disappearance radiated through the town over the following week up until the day when a jogger noticed a small black Reebok laying in the grass on the edge of the reservoir. Not long afterward, Jimmy's body was pulled from the brown water and sent to the morgue. It was there that the doctors noted what appeared to be bite marks on the boy's arm and neck. Victim number two was Amanda DeMiller, 
a girl of seven who had fallen asleep on her way home from shopping with her mother on July 18th. As was common in those days, a parent might leave their sleeping child in the car once at home. Britta DeMiller, Amanda's mother, later told police that with the house being as hot as it was, she thought that Amanda would sleep better in the car with the sliding side door left open. At some point, Mrs. DeMiller looked out the window to see that Amanda was no longer in her seat. The family lived on a fairly wooded road leading into the forests of Middleton. Neighbors were widely separated from one another. Mr. and Mrs. DeMiller spent all night scouring the narrow back roads, knocking on the doors of the occasional houses. After only a three-day search, a local boy found Amanda's body slumped in the corner of his treehouse. Her throat was purple from strangulation and covered with bite marks. Her shoes were on the wrong feet. Anyway, that's how the story goes. That brings us to my first memory. My parents have since placed the date of this memory to around the 3rd or 4th week of August. It had been about a month since Amanda DeMiller's murder, but no one had been apprehended. People in town were still on edge. It was at that time, one afternoon when I sat in the front seat of my mom's rusty Toyota, parked in the giant lot of Henry's grocery store. I remember that there was a car parked on either side of my mother's, and in front of the Toyota was one of those corrals for shopping carts. There was music playing quietly on the radio, Madonna maybe, and my hands were sticky from eating candy. You may wonder how, with all the horrors that plagued Middleton that summer, my mother could have left me alone in the car. The fact is, she hadn't. My older brother Stephen, aged 12 at the time, had been designated as my temporary guardian. When she made a stop for flour, it was this temporary guardian who decided that this was the perfect opportunity to run to the bookstore nearby to buy a deck of collectible cards. Before he dashed out the back seat, I remember him saying something like, don't go anywhere. So there I sat, waiting for one or both of my family members to return. It was that when I saw him, and it's this part which is clear even to this day. The halogen lamps had just come on all across the lot. They cast that greenish glow from just being turned on. The sky beyond the pines that bordered the market was streaked with pink and purple. It must have been around 7.30. I remember first seeing him, standing there some 30 feet from our car. The music from the radio faded from my ears along with the sharp rattle of carriage wheels on the old pavement. Transfixed, silent, I stared out the windshield at this lanky, gaunt figure framed by pink and purple sky. Through a curtain of greasy black hair falling across his brow, I discerned a single eye. It seemed to sort of take a green glow from those halogen lights. He tilted his head back a bit and the hint of a smile danced across his thin lips. He must have stood and stared through the windshield at me, transfixed and spellbound as I was, for a whole minute. He then started a slow walk over to my side of the car, never taking his eyes from mine. Once he was outside my door, he looked down his long beak-like nose at me, then looking around, he began to wiggle the handle. Open up, he said, looking down at me again. I just stared at him without saying anything. Again, open up. His long skeletal fingers left the door handle and started to dance across the window, tapping here and there. 
He crouched down so that he was at my level and started a sort of puppet-like show with his hands. His dirty fingers dashed across the glass like great pale spiders in a deadly battle. He looked at them and laughed, making hissing and growling noises. As he made these sounds, his mouth opened up into a full grin, and I had a look inside at rows of long yellow teeth. They are, to this day, the longest and largest teeth I'd ever seen. There were gaps between them, and they reminded me vaguely of dirty piano keys. He seemed to be completely immersed in his spider battle, giggling and clawing at each of his hands. At one point, he noticed that my window was open just a crack at the top. He looked at me grinning with those mighty teeth and crawled one of his hand spiders up to the space. I was openly sobbing at this point. He managed to squeeze the tips of four fingers through the opening. I caught a greasy whiff of unwashed clothes, mingled with the sweet scent of blood. Come on, open up, he said in a whiny, pleading voice. Open up. He said the same sentence in a dozen different voices, from a girly voice to a thick lumberjack one. By sheer luck, the woman who was parked on the passenger side of our car returned with all four of her noisy kids in tow. Upon seeing her, the man scurried off in a ducked walk towards the cart corral, where he smoothly stood up straight and walked off into the parking lot, but not before looking over his shoulder, gnashing those massive teeth catching me with one final blood-chilling stare. The memory ends there. It was later explained to me that my brother had returned to the car to find me crying hysterically. No matter what he said to calm me through the glass, apparently, I wouldn't unlock the doors. My mother returned soon after. She said that all I could manage to say through the thick sobs was, there was a man. I just kept repeating it for hours. There was a man. Like the insufferable heat, so too did the Middleton murders come to an end with the changing of seasons. Just two weeks after my parking lot encounter, the child killer, who was later identified as Raymond Sandler, age 29, was caught after taking a young girl from a birthday party at a roller rink in Beverly. A worker on his coffee break at the adjacent gas station saw a thin man lead the girl out the back door of the rink and attempt to force her into a red car. The worker called the cops and the car was pulled over on Route 128. While I don't remember it, I first made the connection between the man in the parking lot and Mr. Teeth by seeing my father's newspaper on the coffee table the day after Sandler's capture. There, in a large blown up black and white, was the same ghastly face I'd seen just inches from mine, with only a layer of glass separating us. Apparently I didn't make it to school the day I saw the newspaper on account of I couldn't stop screaming. Knowing that I had almost been a victim myself, my family and people around Middleton weren't willing to tell me anything about the killer once I grew curious. I suppose they didn't want me to freak out more than I already was. So in high school, I did some of my own research. I learned that the Boston Globe had first coined the nickname Mr. Teeth both on the account of Sandler's unusually large incisors and his habit of biting the skin of his victims. His means of killing was almost exclusively strangulation. Due to him being diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, Sandler was often delusional. As a result, his story changed regularly. However, after being asked several times, the number of murders he confessed to, while varying, never went above 10. 
It was also noted in research on Sandler that he only hunted in the summertime. Some speculated that this was because of easy access to children who had been left in cool cars while their parents went into shop. Others suggested that the hot weather triggered something inside of Sandler, something that lay dormant during the fall and winter, then awoke once the temperature hit 80. Who can say? The years have softened that memory a bit. I'm almost 40 now, and while that hideous grin isn't quite as distinct as it used to be, I still see it sometimes when I wake up at night, usually in the warmer months. Someday, one of my two girls, who know nothing of the summer of 89, may ask when they're older, hey dad, what's your first memory? Maybe I'll tell them about the time I was on a stool in my kitchen looking at an old beech tree. Or maybe I'll say teeth. I remember teeth.